0: Show you a better way. You Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 6th, 2020, and uh, we are back now on our True, regularly scheduled programming, guys. Um, but yet, I'm still going to throw you a curveball. It's supposed to be a feedback show because it is a Monday. And it is listener feedback. The Gardening Edition, episode 2574. So these are going to be all questions on gardening. Here's the other thing that's going to be. It's going to be rapid fire. Um I went out on Facebook, or the Book of Faces, and I made a post in the Survival Podcast Facebook forum and on my personal page and said, "Hey, this was Saturday. I want to do a show on uh, gardening. Uh, feedback show. Post your stuff here." And even without doing all of them, uh, quite a few that I said, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to do that one, or that's so much like another one, it'll just be combined. Uh, and then some of them were really complex. And I'm like, you know, email me this. And if that person emails it to you, it'll be like maybe in you know, a regular feedback show or might even be part of a standalone show. Um, and a lot of this stuff kind of went – I put up gardening and I was like, gardening, like Gardening. And yet a lot of these questions are more uh, like hydroponics, some that are really more of a permaculture-level question, uh, system design questions, and stuff like that. Some got filtered out. Some I let them through anyway. Um, ended up with 40 questions. 40 questions. show is supposed to run an hour to an hour and a half. So how am I going to do this? I'm going to try to answer these questions in about one minute each. And some of them I really can give you a good answer, and some of them I'm not so sure. So my other thought is this will be very much a crowdsourcing. So if you hear something, you're like, I know what to do about that, either chime in over at the Facebook group or chime in at the blog. It seems that 90% of our discussion today goes on on Facebook. People ask me, why do you use Facebook? Because my audience is there. Trust me. I mean, the reason I kind of gave up on MeWe is I couldn't get enough of y'all to use it. Um... If people really were heavily still using old school style forums, I'd spend more time on our TSP forum. But Facebook is where everybody is, so that's where I'm at. So if you want to ask questions for a show like this in the future, consider being in our Facebook group. I mean, it it is where people are. There's lots of bad shit about Facebook, guys. I do not defend Zuckerberg, or as I call him, Zuckerberg at all. But it is where people are. And this is the reason you might want to consider doing it for these types of shows. I am going to be doing a whole series of these themed feedback shows like this. And I will probably get the majority of the material from Facebook. And the reason is it's fast, it's easy, and it works. Again, I know Zuckerberg sucks. That's why I call him Zuckerberg. I even have a meme I've posted on Facebook, believe it or not, with Zuckerberg dressed up like a Nazi and it says you can't post that. So I'm not, again, defending the guy. But I make one post, and I get 40 questions all in one place, and they're good. So that's why we're doing that. Now, don't think every Monday is going to turn into this. I'm thinking for the next two, maybe three months of doing this alternating. In other words, this Monday we do a regular feedback show. Next Monday we do a themed feedback show like this, lightning round style. The next one won't be on gardening. It'll be on something totally different. If it keeps working, we'll keep doing it. Anyway, with that, let's get on into it. Let's start out with our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor day, number one, is the Free State Project. There is no organization that I've done more to promote than the Free State Project. And the reason is simple. I believe in what they're doing, and they believe in what they're doing. And that is promoting the concept of liberty in your lifetime. And they're doing that in what they call the Free State of New Hampshire, Now, New Hampshire's not perfect. I pick on John Dowie on Facebook all the time. That's another reason to join Facebook, just to see me beat up on John Dowie, telling me he needs to be on a short bus, et cetera. It's fun. Um, Anyway, um, but it's it's not only good, it's gotten a lot better over the last 10 years, and largely due to the work the Free State Project's been doing. Um, They got together and figured out, hey, if we get a bunch of liberty-minded people, move them all to one place, we can impact that place for the good. They picked New Hampshire for a variety of reasons. If you want to find out some of those reasons... Go to fsp.org forward slash join and see if this is right for you. Next up today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals goes way, way, way back with TSP, back into our first full year. Uh, 2009 is when they signed up as a sponsor, still here with us, still doing a great job. And the world of herbal medicine is so full of snake oil and crap I, that I was overjoyed when Western Botanicals reached out. I was like, this is perfect. This is a company I can trust with my audience. They do things the right way. They don't promise things that aren't, you know, aren't going to work. They don't tell you that, you know, coral calcium is going to cure your cancer or something stupid like that. They have everything that you can think of herbal. In fact, if it's herbal and legal in the United States, you'll find it at Western Botanicals where it's all organically grown or wildcrafted. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Now time for our quote of the day. Um, since this is the gardening show, the most well-known quote I can think of on the concept of a garden itself is by one of my true friends and one of my mentors and contemporaries, um, Jeff Lawton. And Jeff once famously said, I believe it was in the first Greening the Desert video that they did, all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. And I loved that from the very first time I heard it. And when I talked about it on the air, and this is many years ago, this is almost 11 years ago now, I got a lot of feedback from some of you that were like, whatever, all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. It's too fanciful or whatever. I think the reason people feel that way about this quote is if you take it straight up on its face as a face value quote, I I understand why you feel that way. If If the concept was, well, if everybody had a garden, there'd be world peace. No, no, no. All the world's problems can be solved in a garden. Solving the world's problems requires a great many things. One is, straight up in the obvious connection here, the ability for people to be fed. If people are well fed, we have less problems. That doesn't mean bad people only do bad things because they're poor and hungry. But in general, when you have a society where everybody's fed well, there's less trouble than in a society where people are starving. And not just you know the problems that come with homelessness and starvation and poverty, but the problems that come from them, like theft, etc. So we just reduce everything if we can feed people. But there are many, many problems in the world. And the commonality among them all is they require contemplation to develop solutions, and those solutions need to be designed and implemented. And when Jeff says all the world's problems can be solved in a garden, he is talking about the direct and the indirect effects of gardening. There is no better place, in my opinion, for reflection, thinking, and figuring things out than the garden. So with that in mind, let's get on to your gardening questions today. And again, I'm going to go pretty quick with this stuff. Uh, one guy has a problem with powdery mildew, in his case, specifically on roses. Uh powdery, and this guy does a lot of the Howard Garrett stuff, but the one thing I did not hear him mention from Howard Garrett, who, by the way, is the Dirt Doctor, though not a Ph.D. Dirt Doctor is kind of a marketing name. He's local to my area. He's been on the radio forever, and he's syndicated across the country. You can find him at DirtDoctor.com, and he does a lot of, he's the guy that makes the Garrett Juice product that I recommend. Uh, So he did a lot of the things that Howard Garrett has suggested, like improving the soil quality, uh, using Garrett juice both as a soil drench and to use as a foliar feed, try to make the plants more healthy. still has that problem. Um, One of the things that Garrett would recommend that I didn't hear you say you did is hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide spray um, diluted about 50% when you're talking about standard hydrogen peroxide, because there's industrial stuff that's way, way stronger. But the stuff that you get in the the grocery store, the uh, drugstore, whatever, dilute that 50-50 with water and spray that on the plant, and that may get rid of it altogether for you. The other side of it is you want to be a little bit preemptive with that, uh, but you definitely want, like as soon as you see it, you want to hit it. And now don't do this over and over. If you constantly spray a plant with hydrogen peroxide, you'll kill the plant. Um, it's something you'd use like milk once every two weeks but it's a lot easier to get control of it when it's just starting than when it's kind of blown up uh, the other thing you might try is uh, cornmeal tea which is another Garrett recommendation on the soil that might be beneficial as well uh, the biggest reason you get powdery mildew though is too much humidity around the plant so improving airflow, uh maybe changing the time you water something like that might help as well uh, next, someone wanted to know about dealing with squash bugs and growing bigger carrots, and they had a question about uh, chickens. Is anybody who's ever tried to use chickens to control stock, squash bugs or stink bugs? No, it is not doable. Uh, I think one of the reasons that there's so much uh, of a problem is they taste so bad, nothing eats them. I saw a chicken eat a squash bug one time. I threw a leaf with some squash bugs on it over the fence to a chicken, and it was a young chicken that had never done it before and didn't know better, and it ate that squash bug. And I swear to God I could speak chicken or at least understand chicken for about five seconds. And that chicken said, no, 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 hell no, oh, my God, no, 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 and ran away. So it's not going to work. There's not a lot of organic pesticides that really work on them. Um, What people find works, and this this is what I'm saying, crowdsourcing, this guy already has an answer, but I wanted everybody to know this, uh, is row covers, uh, floating row covers, Leave them on until it start the plants start to develop lots of female blossoms, and then take them off so they can be pollinated. If you're a gardener instead of a like the guy that gave that answer is a market gardener, so he's growing a fairly large amount of crop. If you're just growing you know two or three zucchini plants for your family, then you can build basically a squash box. I'm going to build one this year. which is basically a a screened box big enough because you know your zucchinis unlike like your longer vining squashes they're kind of blocky so you might want like a three foot by three foot section for your zucchini to grow in you just set that over there and and cover it with a fine insect mesh or row cover mesh uh, or just use regular row covers if you can get big enough ones and um, when you start to have female blossoms take the thing off and manually pollinate them and put it back on and keep it longer through the season. I mean, two or three squash plants give you, for a family, tons and tons of squash. And eventually they're going to get there. And, and, and the bugs are one thing. It's the vine borers that are really the killer, and they're both difficult to get rid of. But that's a number one way I've seen. Now, bigger carrots. this has got really little carrots. Um, sometimes just waiting longer. too. is the soil really loose? Uh, it probably was because these carrots didn't look like they were, like, really fat. Like, if you get carrots that are short but really fat and ain't supposed to be based on their cultivar, then they're hitting hard pan they can't get down into. Uh, Well irrigated, uh, good sunlight. Some vegetables, and we're going to talk about this because other questions do pretty good in partial shade. Carrots ain't one of them. I grew carrots one year between two rows of beans when I was a little kid, and uh, my granddad let me do it, and I got tons of carrots all came up, and they were all a little impiddly. And that's because the beans shaded them out. They didn't get enough sun. Most root vegetables need lots of sun. So look at your solar uh, exposure on them um, and fertility as well. Carrots are actually fairly heavy feeders. Uh, you might even dig yourself a trench where you're going to plant your carrots. And I don't mean a big trench. I'm talking like you know a, 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 a troweling spade wide, you know, a few inches wide uh, and three or four inches deep. Fill the whole thing with compost. Fill the whole thing with compost and plant into the compost directly, surrounded by soil. Uh, That may work really well for you. Uh, Next up, we have muscadines are dropping off the vine early. Um, Stink bugs are a big reason that happens. They do injury to the fruit. You don't really see it. The fruit starts to rot from the inside, and it drops off early. So that would be one thing to look for. Um, I didn't say this with squash bugs. Stink bugs and squash bugs, one of things you can do when they're on a plant, they're not real coordinated. If you shake the hell out of it, they fall on the ground. If you lay some sort of a tarp down, shake the hell out of it, and vacuum up with a shop vac. Uh, Also deploying traps, uh, sticky traps for squash bugs, stink bugs, is tends to be effective. Another reason this happens with muscadines is nutrient deficiency, and probably the number one is uh, magnesium. Uh, Magnesium deficiency will cause this with muscadines and other grapes. Remember that magnesium by itself to a plant is about as useless as tits on a boar hog. Um, Calcium by itself is about as useless as tits on a boar hog. Uh, you need calcium and magnesium together in, uh, an absorbable way. So doing a, uh, using a, the, the Cal, CalMag, uh, fertilizer I recommend you can find it in the fertility section of the site. Uh, just use the tag fertility on, on TSP. I'll put a link to it if I can remember to. Um, that CalMag, uh, it's really for hydroponics, but it works really great as a soil drench and as a foliar feed. Because uh, it's it's chelated and immediately available. Um, iron and zinc would be the other thing. So within my fertility program, I have an iron, zinc, and cow mag. Uh, that would be something to try as well. Um, and if you're dealing with an insect issue with with grapes, it's 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 kind of hard to do. But if you have them trellised in a way where you can actually put a a fine mesh netting over the way we talked about with the squash, that would be useful as well. Um, and, I mean, that's that's the best I can do for you with the uh, data you gave me. Uh, I, a question about a productive privacy screen, or a FEDGE is what we would call that. And someone else had a very similar question, but they wanted thorny options for it. And both of these guys were like five, zone five or six, and one was like seven. So they're both kind of that middle tier of climate. So productive privacy screen, one of the people said elderberry in the comments in response to that. But the crowds and yeah. Elderberry would be great. Anything that's kind of tall and, and productive. Um, autumn olive would be great if you can get the plants. They're hard to get anymore, but you can propagate your own. Um, you can do a mixture of things. One guy wrote me years ago, and he took all his uh, trimmings from his apple trees, all of the, the prunings, and basically he, you, know, you prune in the winter, so you have like basically a hardwood cutting, and he just stuck all his apple Cuttings. He made them about six, eight inches long, stuck them like 50% into the ground, and a significant portion of them rooted and started growing, and he ended up with an apple hedge. Now, that's a pretty low cost, easy way to do things. Um, if you wanted something thorny, sea berry. High value crop, thorny as the day is long. Um, fairly easy to propagate, and again, very, very high value crop. Uh, my understanding, I've never been able to successfully grow one, that gooseberries get pretty thorny. So gooseberry would be another one, and they're very much like currants in the ability to be rooted through hardwood stuck-in-the-ground cuttings. So that would be another one. Um, goji berry. It, goji berry is like the weakest damn plant in the world when you order it and get one in the mail. It takes a lot of work to get that first one alive. Once you're growing it on your property... You can take a, a, a soft wood cutting, so you want to cut new growth on your plant, and you take that and you stick it in a little pot full of potting soil that's kept moist and put it in the shade, and in two weeks I think it will be rooted like you ain't never seen in your life. It is the easiest thing in the world to root. It only gets, you know, four or five foot tall, but it sends out a lot of suckers. If you're going to go multi-layered, you might use that as kind of your 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 lower layer. That one's not thorny. Um Rosa Ragusa for the one that wants the thorny ones, Rosa Ragusa's are thorny. You can buy them really cheap from large nurseries like uh lawyers, etc. Um and just dirt cheap. I mean less than a dollar a plant. Um they sucker a lot they need a lot of water though, so you're gonna have to make sure you can irrigate that or you have the right amount of uh rain. I lost my whole hedge of rosa rugosas because we didn't water and we had a drought. Um uh, course if it can live here it can live anywhere. Uh, so those are some options there, and we'll save some other ones because there's some more questions like this uh, down the road. Setting up a cheap hydro system with adjustable distance lights. So being able to raise and lower your lights. Well, first off, use the Barina lights I've been talking about. I can't see much of a need for it, so that would just eliminate it. And since you can get six four-foot lights for 100 bucks, it's about as cheap as you're going to do hydro anywhere. And that would give you two shelves four foot long, if you did that, with three lights to a shelf, or three shelves with two lights to a shelf, which is probably enough. If you do, if you're going to grow something that's going to get tall enough, and you do want some ability to move the light, light up and down, I would say that you're going to, if you're doing the type of system it seems like you're asking about, instead of like, we're talking about a commercial system or something here, we're talking about small-scale home hobbyist, the easiest thing would be whatever your reservoir is that you're going to grow in, put some under it and lift the reservoir up. So, you know, a standard brick, I think, is about four inches thick. So if you just set a row of four-inch-thick bricks, pavers, what have you, on your shelf and put your reservoir on there, that's going to raise your plant four inches. Then when your plant gets near the, the, the light, you know, pick the reservoir up, take the bricks out. Probably easier with two people. One person lift, the other person pull the bricks out. That's the fastest, most expedient, least. Bricks are cheap. You can probably find them for free. So I think it's easier to raise the plant up and then lower the plant down than to worry about moving the lights with some kind of pulley system or something like that. The cheapest hydro system is Kratky because there's no pumps involved. And once you have no pumps, I don't think people understand what makes Kratky hydroponics so cheap. Since there's no pumps, there's no plumbing. Me and my buddy David have a, a saying about PVC. The pipe is free. Now you're thinking, Jack. I bought some pipe. It ain't free. It isn't, but when you look at it as a percentage of cost of the system, it is because you know it's expensive fittings and valves and bulkheads and unisils. That's what that's where all the money is in the plumbing system. So as soon as we get rid of a pump, we get rid of the plumbing, and it's stupid cheap. Um, I'm going to be doing some things in the greenhouse as I redesign it. They're going to be kind of a crap key, deep water hybrid so i'll say my thoughts on that but you go with go with Kratky, uh use the barina led lights and if you need to move the the the, the distance move the reservoir versus moving the uh, uh the, the the light fixtures it would be my honest advice there um next uh, uh gnats living in container plant soils that's that's been an issue one of the things that uh was said was to sand cap your container plants so basically take your container plants and mulch them with sand and that'll keep the gnats out cuz they want the moisture i bet that'll work uh the other uh, option like a hardscape mulch option would be pea gravel would probably be very effective cuz it's not going to be the environment they're looking for but when it comes especially indoor like house plants container plants etc when you have insect issues, just like the easiest, totally safe pesticide, if you want to call it that, to make it, is a couple drops of dishwashing uh, detergent. You know, hand, like the, the liquid uh, for washing dishes that you use in the sink. A couple drops of that in a bottle, a spray bottle. And that soap gets on, especially like a gnat gets on them and just knocks them out. And it's not going to hurt anything. Uh, you wash your hands in it before you eat. So you're not an insect. You don't have an exoskeleton. It won't harm you, but it knocks them out. Uh, that that will work on a lot of weak insects. Uh, so most of the stuff you have on house plants are not going to be tough, hard-to-kill things like squash bugs or something like that. You spray a squash bug with it, it'll probably take a bath right in front of you, mock you, uh, suck on your squash, and, and fly away. Um, but it really works well for indoor plants. So that would be one way you could deal with that. Uh, dealing with excess water retention in garden soil, a guy says his soil just stays really really wet. First thing is raised beds. I mean, I have a question later about raised bed versus in-ground. If you have poor joint draining soils, raised beds work really well whether you bring in your own mixture or not, doesn't matter. Number 2, trees are hydraulic pumps. So thinking about the aspect, the solar aspect, so that we don't plant a tree, that it becomes a problem. The problem is the solution, or the problem can be the problem if we use it wrong. So if we were to take, let's say we have a garden area, and just to the north end of that garden plant some trees, those trees are going to pull up a lot of moisture and help with the overall problem. Making the soil better drained. So a lot of people say, put sand in it. Sand? Sand? Sandy soil is well-drained, but generally when you add sand to soil like you're talking about, you can actually end up with the sand being pretty good at wicking, and it will actually kind of exact the problem becomes the problem again. So um, what I find helps soil drain is the same thing that helps soil to hold more moisture, which is organic matter. So compost um, does real good, and wood chip mulch. Wood chip mulch is one of the greatest things in the world to use to solve moisture issues, no matter whether they're too much or too little. Um, basic science called osmosis uh, is the same reason if you take a, a tray of water and you put a sponge in it, the sponge gets wet and the tray gets less water in it. It sucks it up. Um, but if you take a wet sponge and set it on a dry sponge, both sponges end up to be damp sponges. And that's how wood chips work. You put wood chips on top of soil that's really, really wet, and they will hydrate. And they'll pull a lot of that moisture out. When that ground finally starts to dry out, they'll try to equalize. So heavy wood mulch is also very, very beneficial. Those are the best tips I can give you on that one. How about indoor seed starting versus winter sowing and how, how hydroponics, specifically cracky, would fit into that. So winter sowing is where you just go and you put your seeds out in the wintertime for your plants you want to grow and this is working with nature because while the soil's cold they just don't grow and this doesn't work everywhere and it doesn't work with everything and it's harder in a climate like mine where we might get four or five days in a row in the 80s in 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 february followed by four or five days below 20 degrees for a high because you can get plants can get tricked if that soil warms up But it works in a lot of climates, and if you time it right, and this person's done this, now they've moved to a much colder climate, and it may work for you, but you have a shorter growing season. My view is seed is cheap. Plants are expensive, okay? So go ahead and take your best shot at it and start some plants as a plan B backup. And then if you don't start enough plants... You can still buy some plants, but you don't have to buy all your plants because plants are expensive. If you have too many plants, since plants are expensive, they can be very valued gifts to people, or you can sell them. So that's how I would solve that issue. I really think that a lot of plant types especially, we do really well to start them indoors. I'm not 100% saying that Kratky as a seed starting system is right for everybody. Uh, I've had really good results. I've had some not as something plants didn't seem to do as good yet. I I need to get some peppers planted just to see how they do and what kind of results I can expect and to know when to start them because damn, stuff's growing fast. I went up there yesterday, and in one day, some of those plants grew an inch, and I don't even have it balanced right yet or anything. So to me, what I love about Kratky for seed starting is you put your plugs in, you set your water level, you put your seeds in there, and you walk away. It's fire and forget. And you may find that you, depending on how deep your reservoir is, how much space you have, because I'm using pretty shallow reservoirs, you have to add some water or some nutrient solution to bring that level back up once or twice to all those plants get roots down. But once they get roots down, man, I mean, basically my seed starting is turning into growing. You know, I got to figure out what I can plant, where I can plant it at this point, what I just want to go ahead and eat. That's how well it's worked. Um, So, whether you do soil-based plants or not, I think you're going to have a big advantage. And the colder the climate, the more this is true. Especially when you're not peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, etc. I mean, if you're going to winter, you know, if you're going to winter sow, try it. But you know, have a plan B, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, next, uh, preparing a quarter of an acre now for gardening this spring. And there were a lot of questions on dealing with lawns, abused garden beds, you know, that are grown in with weeds and stuff. Uh, if you right now have an area you want to garden in next year, and a quarter acre is pretty big. So you might not be, depends on, you know, most people say quarter acre. They don't mean a quarter acre. They mean a quarter acre with a bunch of rows. And a lot of times when people say something's a quarter acre, it's not quite a quarter acre, too. So that's a big garden. Tarp. Tarp, 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 tarp. Now, a quarter acre of tarp is pretty expensive. Uh, you, you can do close to a quarter acre, though. You could certainly do rows in a quarter acre with walk rows in between them using 6-mil plastic. Um, I think a 100-foot by 10-foot wide roll of 6-mil black plastic is like 30 or 40 bucks. Now that's significant area. And if you're doing, what, like four foot beds, then you would cut the damn thing down the center and you'd have two 100 foot strips with uh, two foot, uh, what, one foot of extra uh, overlay. So plenty of room. I am actually going to do this method with my brand-new beds that have no real weed or anything in them, though we did get some grass clumps and stuff like that using the Bobcat to move the soil that I bought back there. Um, But this is what I would do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go – now, you you might not use as much amendment. You might just mostly just tarp. But here's what I'm going to do, and then you – based on how much area you have to deal with, you decide how much you want to invest. I'm going to go buy for four beds – that are 12, 12 by 4, really 24 by 4 on one end and they're, they're in an angle, a right angle. But they're equi- each one of my beds is equivalent to two 4 by 8s and one 4 by 4. That, that's how that math works out. So for each one of those, I'm going to put down a whole bag of cheap sweet feed. It's about 12 bucks a bag as a fertilizer, as a nourishment, as a sugar. And I'll put down some organic fertilizer and then I'm going to completely mulch with straw. Then I'm going to put that black plastic over it, and I'm going to say goodbye to it for a couple months. I'll make sure I give it a really good watering in, and I'll check it from time to time. And if it seems like it's drying out because it's a deep raised bed and water can't get into it, you know, I'll wet it down from time to time, maybe once a week. You won't have to do that if it's in the ground like you're talking about. And then when you pull that back, nature will have done the work for you. In a colder climate like this person was, you know, you might leave it till the end of March. Don't pick it up until you're going to plant it. That's the easiest way because you will kill 99% of everything, especially as you start getting later in the year. And the surface temperature under that black plastic, even when it's pretty cool still, will get damn hot. We'll talk about that on microclimates and another question about give you an idea of how much that can actually happen. Uh, next up, best seed catalogs to order from and why. Um... That's a big. It depends. I love Baker Creek, but when I found Red Mizuna and realized how much a little packet of it cost, and I decided this is going to be a, a staple crop, I went to any seed and bought a half ounce of it for like nine dollars. You see how I'm going? That's a lot. It's like forty-two thousand seeds for nine bucks. So I like all of them. And then it might have been Johnny's I bought the Mazuma. One, it was either Annie or, or Johnny's that I bought the Mazuma from, but I got a ton of it. I bought a bunch of different stuff like that. So I kind of look at it this way. A company like Baker Creek, you know, they travel all over the world. They work with a lot of seed producers. They also produce a lot of seed, and they make sure all this wonderful stuff is available. So to me, I find them to be an incredible resource. They always deliver. They never don't deliver what they promise, but they're a little pricey because they're boutique. Some things it's hard to find anywhere else, so I'll buy that from them. Some things I can find anywhere else, but I learned about it from their catalog. So I might buy it from them to try it, and if I like it and I'm going to be spending a lot of money on it, I'll buy from somebody else. So that's kind of how I make my decision on a lot of this stuff. But some of the bigger names that we don't really think of as like small seed houses, and I love the small seed houses, Um, Some of the ones that have been around forever, like Burpee and Parks, have some things that you just can't get anywhere else. Um, They're exclusive to them. They've developed them. Parks has a cucumber called Eureka. I think that's the one. It's like the most disease-resistant cucumber in the world. And it's rather expensive to buy their seed. If you're a farmer, but if you're a gardener, a packet of Eureka cucumber seed will probably keep you for two or three years. So you don't care that it's relatively expensive per seed. Um, I recently talked about Salanova lettuces. You want Salanova lettuce, you have to go to Johnny's. Why? Because they seem to have an exclusive. It's not their seed, but they have an exclusive on a patented variety for the duration of the patent, at least for now. I don't know if maybe whoever holds that patent will open it up to other people. Uh, Easy Leaf, high mowing. So if you want any of these one-cut lettuces, You kind of go where they are. So I I really don't think there's a best catalog or a best provider. I think you figure out what you want, and then you figure out who has it. And that's what I love about the catalogs, because they send you a catalog for free. I try not to abuse that fact. I try to give all these guys exposure and whatever. But I'll sit down and just page your catalogs and dog your pages. And come up with a list of stuff I want to try, and then kind of, you know, I can't do it all in one year, so what do I want to try this year? And, and that's really how I handle uh, the catalogs. Um, next up, uh, control of root knot nematodes. Beneficial nematodes is the best solution to root knot nematodes, is to you buy and put out per instructions in the right time uh, beneficial nematodes. Uh, the, the The best kind of roll your own solution is good, high-quality compost tea, which will encourage your own beneficial nematodes. Uh, next, best direct sow cold-weather crops. And the guy said, am I limited to uh, lettuce and uh, spinach? No, but kind of. Um, you know, in cold weather, as long as the ground could be working, you can put out onion sets really, really early. So that's really not a direct sow, but it sort of is. Um, Uh, Broccoli, cauliflower, um, kale, um, a lot of those work best to sow in early fall and garden them through the winter because they do have a rather long growth cycle from seed, but they're very cold weather tolerant once they're mature, if that makes sense. so. When you got a little bitty block, broccoli plant it's got like four real leaves on it. it it doesn't really handle the cold very well and worse is it might handle it, but it doesn't grow. It just goes really really slow. But if you get it up to where it's almost ready to start putting a head on before the really really cold weather hits, I have pictures from all the way back when I was at Ar- in Arlington with my fr- first garden when I started the show uh, where I've got broccoli with ice hanging off of it with headset. Now, those were plants that were put out. They weren't direct sowed, but it does show you the tolerance that broccoli has. Um, but you know, you're, you're limited to cold-weather plants that you can get up to enough size to deal with the fact that it's cold. Or you need to start you know, maybe doing some cold-frame gardening or something like that. Um, or just be willing to start your plants indoors. There's just a tremendous advantage to doing that. Um, tr- uh, trouble getting the certiums to grow. Uh, I, I can get them to grow like crazy. I just can't keep them growing. Uh, the person that said this said they're going to buy some of the variety I recommend, which is a tall trailing mix and they should do well for you. This person's in New Jersey. It's, it's kind of surprising to me. You've just had no real luck with them. I will say this. You probably need to start them earlier than you think. Because even New Jersey gets pretty hot. The number one thing that seems to really clobber nasturtiums is heat. Mine are beautiful, and all of a sudden they kind of start to yellow, and then they just kind of fade away. And a few little tucked-in places, a couple survive, but they don't thrive. So if you're planting them too late in the year, what may be happening is you get up into those 99-degree Jersey summer days, and they're just pooping out before they get a chance to do anything for you. Um, they, They do want sun, though. This is a cool-weather subtropical plant, like India. You think of how hot India is, but they have their winter where it doesn't freeze, but it's cool. I guess parts of India do, but where the nasturtiums are really a popular plant, they're kind of in that subtropic, edge of the subtropics into the temperate climate, and they like to grow in that cool-weather season. So they want sun, but they don't want too much heat. So the number one thing you can do for them, give them good, solid eastern sun, and western shade. And that works for so many different plants. Keeping cats out of the garden. Get one of the water sprinklers that has the automatic sensor, a camera that's like a Defender or something like that. You can find it on Amazon. And set it up. Run a garden hose to it. Stick it in the garden right where the cats come And every time that cat trips that sensor, it'll water the shit out of that cat, and it won't take long before all the cats determine that your garden is a bad place. You probably won't even have to use it anymore. And if not, it's a pretty cheap, pretty simple solution. Best automated irrigation solution for when you have to travel a lot. It doesn't matter as much as you think. It's the automation that matters, whether you use conventional sprinklers um, or whether you use kind of an in-ground uh, shrub sprinkler type situation, like or like basically the same kind of system you would for watering a, a lawn, uh, or drip irrigation, all that matters is that it is in fact automated. And that it does in fact happen. Because this guy says he gets called out for like 10 days of TDY. And you might not know that's happening until tomorrow. And now you've just planted. And especially you seem concerned about you know when you've just planted, so when you plant and wait, well, that is when it's you know the the most critical that things get watered when you just put out seed or you've put out young plants that don't have their roots down yet. You know once you got roots down six eight inches, if you miss a day of watering in all the, you know my climate, um, plants tend to be okay. But you uh, you let the top dry out, especially the worst thing is you plant seed. It's just sprouted, just sprouted, and it dries out. You've basically made maltered barley at that point, right? Like, it's dead. It's not coming back. So that is the most critical time, which means if you're going to do drip, you need to be really strategic about how you do drip. In other words, if you're going to take a garden bed and broadcast carrot seed in it, grow a ton of carrots, Drip irrigation will work, but it won't work real good during germination. you got to keep the whole surface wet. But if you're going to plant you know, peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, stuff like that, and you're going to really heavily mulch, well, let's say straw mulch, uh, do the Jeff Lawton thing, cover the ground with you know, a couple layers of soaked newspaper, and then cover it with straw, and then wherever your emitters are on your drip system, pull back your mulch, poke some holes in the paper, Throw a handful of compost in there and plant straight into that so that drip is right where that plant is. If you're going to do that, drip is the way to go. So it all depends on how you're going to manage and plant your garden. But automation itself is the key. Um, Nicole Saw said, what media would you use for growing tomatoes on the south side of a house with fishless aquaponics? Nicole, we call that hydroponics. Um, what media? It depends. Uh, the kind of go-to media for tomatoes, Dutch buckets, ebb and flow, all of it for tomatoes is Lika, which is the expanded clay pebbles, uh, also known as hydrogen. and it's the best and it's the most expensive. I've looked and I've seen more and more people doing tomatoes with deep water culture, whether it be Kratky or recirculating hydroponics, either one. And as long as we keep the fluid level up high enough in that container, there's no reason we can't basically just do hydro with a float valve. And that's probably what I'm going to try. I haven't decided yet, but probably what I'm going to try. So that would mean your media is nothing. Maybe a little bit of leica or perlite or something in a net cup. And I will try to remember, this is a long show, but I'll try to remember at the end of the show to get a video Um, B.A. Kratke himself has a YouTube channel and he shows how to build float valves out of things like plastic bottles and some uh, special materials and all for about a dollar a valve. Now, once you do that, you can afford to put a valve in every container, which is why he came up with the way to do it. So, you do that, and then basically all you need is a a tank that's, you know, dark so light can't get into the nutrient solution. And then you run that to your float valves of your containers for your tomatoes. And then this is why I would try to consider maybe a long-shaped container for the, instead of buckets. Because now we can do one float valve, maybe four, or five, or six plants. Now, I know what you're thinking, but Jack, you just said I can build the float valve for a dollar. But what I say is the most expensive part of any aquatic system that involves pumps, plumbing, right? Plumbing and fittings. If we can take that down to a single thing, so how do we do that super cheap? Well, maybe we just build ourselves a long, narrow, somewhat deep box out of, like, lumber. And then we... Remember that 6 millimeter black plastic? Yeah. We put that in there. Now, what Kratke does to control mosquitoes in Hawaii, you really better do this, um, he puts... Uh, window screening, so you put your fluid in your bot, your your container, and then you put window screen, and then you put your cover on, and your plants grow through the screen. These really, really fine mesh roots through the screen, and once the water drops below the screen level, which doesn't take long, the mosquitoes have no way to get in, and any that do get in can't get out once they hatch. Okay, fine, you can do that, but I'll tell you what, you can buy a big jug of those BT... Uh, bits for like 20 bucks and it's a lot easier to just throw a handful of those in there every three or four weeks and not even a handful of sprinkling of them just knocks them out so that would be another way to handle that but that's what i'm going to probably do is no media at all and what got me thinking that way because i was like you gotta do media with tomatoes because everybody does it so you know you got to do it uh really you do? And then we had the guy on about doing uh, aquaponics and hydroponics and cannabis, and they're growing these huge cannabis plants in deep water culture. Probably the closest analog of plant type from cannabis is a tomato. I mean, so much in the hydroponic tomato world has come from the cannabis world, and so much in the hydroponic cannabis world, I mean, talking old days in closets, uh, came from what the Dutch were doing with tomatoes. So even though they call them Dutch buckets, well, I've looked at a lot of videos lately of greenhouse farming, and I see a lot of tomatoes being grown in Holland by the Dutch, or the Netherlands by the Dutch, and guess what? Hmm, there ain't no bucket there, just deep water culture. So that's probably what I'm going to try, is just doing it with Kratky deep water uh, with either a float valve or being mindful to not let the level go below a certain level. The one problem with hydro outdoors is that when it rains and it fills up your reservoir with rain, then it throws off all your your metrics. Well, I figure if you just take some of that plastic and kind of put it over the top of your thing, you have very little place where water can get in anyway. So we could even do that by cutting a little disc out and putting it over the net cup, and then we shouldn't have too much water getting into the reservoir. Uh, Next up. When you have mulched and tarped, should you do any tilling in the spring? So we talked about killing all the weeds and tarping a garden. You can. I think it depends on what you really want. I don't hate tilling to the point of anybody that tills anything needs to die. A lot of market gardeners, a lot of spin farmers use tilling. They don't till real deep, and they don't till very frequently, but they till when they need to till. If you still have some stuff that looks like it's kind of be a problem or some chunks that need to be broken up or whatever, it certainly won't hurt anything. But I would say if you till, then you should once again mulch. Because if you till and you don't mulch, you've exposed and then you start getting oxidation and you start losing all the things that you worked so hard for. If you pull the tarp off and everything seems really wonderful, don't till, just add some fresh mulch and get going. Uh, Making gardening easier for older folks or anyone with mobility issues. I know i sound like a broken record, but probably Kratky hydroponics. Or any type of raised bed scenario where we truly raise the bed like to waist height. But now I'm going to explain why I would go with Kratky for that. So if we're going to build a really tall raised bed, we either have to build something that's like a table and has a container, and then we plant into it, which is a lot of work. And then we have to shovel heavy dirt up into it. Okay, Um, If we build it really tall, like the system I just put in, beautiful system, fairly expensive, fairly expensive. That's a lot of dirt in there, $600 worth of dirt in there. And I have a place I can get cheap dirt at wholesale because I'm a veteran, and they give me the same price, and they give landscapers. And that required, in our particular location, since the truck couldn't get back there, a bobcat for a day. So expense... And then a lot of work to set up. Let's say I wanted to do a 4x8 Kratky hydroponic bed. Well, I need probably six legs across that span. to it be 4x4s. Four so I can go get, what, three 8-foot 4x4s to cut them in half. That's probably overbuilt, but it's not a problem. Uh, then I'm going to frame it with 2x8 or 2x6 even is deep enough. And I'm going to use regular uh, pressure-treated 2x4s to reinforce the bottom. So basically I'm going to have a 2x4 frame and then a 2x8 or 2x6 frame on top of that. And then I'm going to have a piece of plywood, a 4x8 section of plywood. Well, you go down to Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, right, and what size is the plywood? 4x8. If I want them to be more narrow and I want to build two of them, and let's say I want to build them 2x8, I need that one piece of plywood cut in half. So I get a good thick deck plywood. They'll put it on the machine. They'll cut it in half for me. Hell, if I just want it to be easier to do, I might have them cut it in half long ways anyway because it's just going to go right back in that box. So now I don't have to carry a 5-8 or 3-quarter thick, heavy 4x8 sheet of plywood to wherever I'm building it. I carry half of it. I'd have them cut in four pieces. I can either make smaller ones or put all four back together. It doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? So then I get some of that six mil black plastic, stupid cheap, and I line the box that I've made. But it might leak. It's cheap. You have a whole bunch of it. If it leaks, you can replace it. But I hear your pain. Okay? So then we lay down a second one. We make two two layers thick of it. And then when we do that, we put a hole through the bottom, and we put a bulkhead in it. Even if we're not going to do recirculating at all, it's going to be just absolute um, hydroponic, just cracky, non-circulating hydroponics. When we need to drain that fluid out and replace it, all we need is a straight valve down there. We open it, water comes out. See? And we take a garden hose and spray it out. Now we plant into foam beds. A 4 by 8 will grow a lot of food When you're talking about just a, a small family, the older people and mobility issues, and all, I mean, you're not talking about somebody running a farm here. Two of those or two four by fours or three four by fours, however you want to build it, wherever you want to build it would be awesome. And if you really wanted to give yourself an advantage in that situation, build yourself instead of, you know, you could eventually turn it into a greenhouse if you really wanted to. But if, at first, just build yourself an overhead cover and take the clear, uh, tough text like people make greenhouses with and make your roof out of that. Now it's not going to get rained on, because we don't want it to get rained on anymore, and it has to. now they're not going to get rained at all. And if we have a climate where it gets too hot, all we need is a piece of custom-cut shade cloth of whatever percentage you want and get from Greenhouse Megastore. That you can give me any dimension you want. They'll put grommets on it, line the edges, whatever, and they can send it to you. And you can either buy it where it just covers the roof... Or you can actually do it to where it comes down a little bit so you get some shade from the sides. And it's just in the, in the summer you throw it over the top and in the winter you take it away. And now that person who probably doesn't need to be baking in the heat has a nice 30-40% you know, shade environment in the hottest time of the year. And everything is completely protected. And now you're not going to be growing a lot of row crops and everything like that. But your greens, your herbs, etc., everything is really, really easy. If you want to go with soil, then small container gardens make a lot of sense. Because if we have a pot, somebody can help you and put it up on something a little bit more elevated. Every time you, you know, the biggest heavy-duty work with gardening is always weeding and bending over and digging. So we want to avoid those. So those are some thoughts I have on that. Um, Basics of tree planting. (laughs) Um, Howard Garrett, and look up sick tree treatment. It tells you how to, to... to deal with a tree that's sick, which will tell you how not to make it sick in the first place. But your big thing is your root flare. People always say when you're planting fruit trees or whatever it's grafted, don't bury the graft. If you are even close to the graft, you are too deep. Where those roots flare out, the top of your roots, your main roots, should be above the soil line. 99% of problems will go away. If you stop planting trees too deep. Number two, when you mulch around a tree, don't mulch around the tree itself. Mulch around the outer edge of the tree. What, what I see done all the time around here is it's like a volcano. They have mulch just piled five, six inches deep up against the base of the tree. You're going to kill the tree. You're back to if you planted it too deep. You've, even if you didn't, now you did. Plus, when you put mulch on the tree, you will rot the bark off the tree. And if anything, you'll start to have a tree actually convert what's above the ground into root. Okay? It it, it just starts eating away the bark, and it might start rooting, or it'll die. So mulch around a tree should be, the closer it is to the tree, the thinner it should be. And if you're going to be thicker, as you go out away from the tree, you get thicker. Um, Next there's been some studies done, and it seems like it is true that a square hole works better for a tree than a round one. Um, make sure that you get as much dirt off of the root ball if it's a, a root, you know, a tree in a pot as possible, and straighten your roots out. And any root that you can't reasonably straighten out, cut it. Because if you get a circling root, the tree will strangle itself to death within five years. Don't put a bunch of amendments in the hole with the tree. Plant the tree in the soil in which it's going to grow and fertilize on the surface more toward away from the tree than toward the tree so the tree has to go there and make sure the tree gets enough irrigation. We, we always think about irrigating our grass. We always think about irrigating our plants, et cetera, because they die so much faster. Trees need irrigation in most environments, especially in the first few years. Um, gardening after a fire and thoughts on Australia. Well, Australia uh, has just massive problems right now that are really hard to even look at. And I can't say a lot about it because of the format of the show and the speed that I need to move. But it doesn't really have a lot directly to do with gardening. But if you have a garden site and there has been a burn there, it's not really a problem. Now, it will trigger some weed seeds that are burn-triggered seeds. See, there's, there's four main triggers when it comes to seed germination. There's compaction. You really compact the ground you're going to get certain triggered seeds that are designed to decompact ground. You get really, really loose ground, you're going to get hair net, right? You get really, really, really wet ground. There's certain seeds that are going to get triggered by being really, really wet that won't get tri- triggered by typical moisture levels that are good for plants. And fire. Fire will also trigger certain things. So you might get some new pioneering weeds, but in the end, you've got a bunch of fertility you just created. Um, there could be some damage. Some, you know, Sometimes clay can actually be fused together or whatever. But in the end, fire doesn't do much six inches deep. So if you have a burned out area, you may actually have better fertility because of the potash and what have you from the ash. In fact, one of the main ways that uh, man has you know, conventionally grown a lot of things is slash and burn. So it's not really a big deal. Uh, In most instances, it will often get rid of a lot of diseases and things like that, but just basic good cultivation practices going forward. Um, Easiest set and forget garden plants. Well, the easiest thing to grow uh, that you can kind of just walk away from as long as it gets enough rain and has enough fertility and you don't have to do much to it is corn or wheat. Because once it's high enough that the weeds can't compete with it, you don't have to worry about weeds. Even if you have weeds, they don't they don't really shut the plant down. Um, I don't grow a lot of that kind of stuff anymore. But like when I was a kid, we grew um, a plot that would be, I guess it was about 12 foot wide by about 50 foot long of silver queen sweet corn. We grew that at my grandpa's place every year. And I would go in and plant a third, a third, and a third a couple weeks apart so that we had a third, a third, and a third of harvest coming in. And honest to God, we had to really water it well when we first planted it to make sure that the sprouts got up and the roots got down. But once it was off and going, unless you had a drought, we didn't do anything. I mean, it literally did nothing. Even a lot of plants that will out-compete weeds fairly well and do pretty well on their own... The problem with set-and-forget mentality is if you don't pick them, they don't keep producing. So, like, green beans are great, but if you don't pick them, they'll go to mature pods, they'll start to dry out, and they'll just stop making more. So there's not a lot, in my opinion, that does what you're asking for that's not a commodity crop. Potatoes, you know, what have you. A lot of fruits are fairly forget-and-set because you don't really do anything except for certain times of year. So if you're going to do cane fruits like blackberries and raspberries and all, there's a certain way to prune them, a certain time to prune them, um, and what have you. But then they grow, and then you harvest them. And in between those two things, there's not a lot to do. So the more you want to be set and forget, the more you're moving either toward commodity crops or the more you're moving toward perennial crops. Um you know, when you look at all the other crops, if you don't harvest, they end up going to seed or what have you. Um, so the key is trying to be less set and forget and more how do we plant things that we specifically need and have the time for. This guy's going to be going all in on livestock this year. Uh, broken record, I'm sorry, but like one of the cool things you could do is set up a small cracky system for your grains. Because it is about a set and forget as it is. You know, um, one of the ways I'm thinking about doing things in my greenhouse is setting up some beds, a lot like I talked about, horizontal deep water beds, and then throwing some of those marina lights underneath one, and using that wasted space down there as my seed starting. Because then all you have to do, right? If you need, let's say, a dozen various, you know, lettuce heads, basil's, whatever per week, then you start a dozen you harvest a dozen, and you plant a dozen. So we pull these 12 out, we put these 12 from the bottom underneath, and we take these ones and we drop 12 seeds in, and and at the beginning of the season, if that's what you had, you could even come up with kind of a block that is 12 plants, and then get little bags and fill them with 12 seeds, or 24 seeds of whatever, you know. And, and then all you do is take your little rack and, drop your dozen in, float it and go on. And remember, your seed starting area can be, you know, a tenth the size of your grow out area, which is why I'm kind of thinking about doing that like I could throw four barina lights underneath that sucker and I could start 40-50 plants easy. And that means if I can grow out 300, I could be doing 50 a week every three weeks through a cycle or, or so. So that would be another way to look at that uh, set-and-forget kind of mindset. Um, Cut-and-come-again plants, too, like Swiss chard. See, Swiss chard would be an, an exception to the rule. It's a green, but it just grow and grow and grow and grow, and when you cut it, it still comes back. That would be another great one to look at. Um, your weed-like plants, like dandelion, chicory, et cetera, would be another example of that. Encouraging a lot of wild edibles. It's probably your best bet outside of the things I already said. Partial shade in potatoes. The guy said it seemed like some of the potato plants that he grows do the best in partial shade. It's probably so. And like all things, shade is a good thing, and there can be too much of a good thing. I'm back to the greatest thing that you can do for your garden is give it about six to seven hours of sun and then shade. And that is better than six to seven hours of sun till the end of the day. And what I mean by that is if that sun is eastern, you're better off. That western sun, it gets scorching hot. Now, there are some things that like it. So potatoes are actually a cool-weather crop. What is the most famous country in relation to the potato? Ireland, right? I'm starved of that because of it, too, but Ireland. Most famous. I say potato, you think Ireland. What's the most known state for potatoes in the United States. Idaho. Now, they grow them in great big fields and they get sun all day. But they're both cool climates, aren't they? And so people are like, well, they're South American. Yeah, mountains. Cool climate. Moderate climates. Even in places they grow that are, you know, doesn't really go below freezing hardly ever. It still doesn't get very hot. You want to grow potatoes? Go to Cuenca, Ecuador. Look that place up. Oh, it'll blow you away. What What that place is like. Right on the damn equator, but it's so high that the average evenings are down in the low 60s and the average days are like high 70s. It's pretty much there all the time. I bet you could grow some good potatoes there. Um, so partial shade probably helps more with keeping the soil cool than it does with the potato not really wanting sun. Um, question on keeping voles out of your garden. If you want to get rid of voles in a big, giant area, it's complicated and I can't go into it today. The good news about a garden is most gardens are relatively small. Voles can't climb worth shit. And they can only go about a foot deep. So if you build a fence that's three foot tall and you use something like hardware cloth and you put that about a foot into the ground, so you put a one foot deep trench all the way around your garden and build yourself like just a cap rail, you know, two by four type fence that's even a you know, four-foot hardware cloth and go three-foot high, you ain't going to have no voles in there except the ones that are already in there. And then you can set some traps and stuff like that and get rid of them. Um, they go above and below ground. A vole and a mole are very different. And voles are easily killed with the same type of poison that you kill rats with. I've talked to a lot of people about rats lately, and I'm telling you what I did here, eventually I went to a, a toxic solution. I don't like it, but it worked. I mean, even with the cats killing them all, we still have some problems in some places. We had them wiping out our eggs in the duck house, for instance. Um, buy the trap, not the traps, the bait stations that dogs and cats can't get into, and then put them where dogs and cats can't get to them. That's your double redundancy. Now, you don't have to worry about your rats finding it. They'll find it, and they'll eat it. And I know what you're thinking. It's the same worry I had. But then the rat is going to eat the poison, and the rat's going to die, and the dog's going to eat the rat, and my dog's going to die from eating the rat. So I looked into it. A rat has a pretty small stomach, and it can't eat very much rat poison. Most of these rat poisons are basically heparin. They are they cause blood hemorrhaging, so they're a blood thinner, and they thin the blood so much that the animal bleeds to death internally and dries up and mummifies. And you find one that's been dead a while; they're compl- it looks like somebody put them in a dehydrator. Um, it would take For even a small dog, like a 30-pound dog, a lot of rats for that dog to, to eat at one time to get a high enough dose to hurt the dog. Cats, obviously it could be less, but I haven't had any problems with my cats. What we did is we'll put out a bait station, and we'll wait till all the bait's eaten, and I'll wait like two weeks, and then I'll put out another bait station. And what that means is the total number that are available to be consumed at any one time is very, very low. Now, if you had a massive infestation and you killed hundreds of them and your dog was hungry and went in there and, and ate till he couldn't move, he probably could kill himself. But I haven't had any problems. So I know it's not for everybody. I am the last person that wants to use a toxin. But I got to a point where every, I, I had I'd go in and all my duck eggs were eaten by rats. And I'm like, I can't have it. Um, I I started having problems in my aviary. Some of them got in there, and they were eating my plants to the ground. So, you know, you go in there. I'd raise beds, so I'd tuck a, a bait station back in there, and it would take a week before they would completely feed down on two bait sticks. But then they were gone. And when I don't have a problem, I stop using it. And if I start to see them around again, that way we keep the population low, so you're only going to have so many going off at one time. It works. Again, I don't like it, but it works. Uh, gardens uh, and electric fences in sandy soil. So the gardening in sandy soil, because of the water, it's, it drains so fast and all, it, it, it's, it's still just back to organic matter. Lasagna mulch, lots of compost, lots of mulch. There's no other way. There's nothing else you can do. Now, one thing you can do is amend sand with a small amount of bentonite clay, which will you know help to hold more moisture in. And there's an old video called Urban Permaculture out of Australia. Josh something. I'll see if I can find that for you. He goes through exactly. His soil is not so much sand. He's more like dusty. He uses a wetting agent and some bentonite clay. And you can watch that and see how he does that. But the best thing is lots of compost. You have clay soil, lots of compost, and organic matter. You have sandy soil, lots of compost, and organic matter. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's always going to be that. The problem with sandy soils is because they're so dry, a lot of times electric fences won't work. The only thing I know that you can do with that is go really deep with your grounding rod. And the other thing is if it's a small area, like if you're electric fencing, you know, uh, Huge ranch or something. I, you could never do this, but like if you have like a holding area for your animals and you want to put electric wire around that, um, or you have a garden or something like that, setting up some basic irrigation around that outline and just, you know, it doesn't have to be really, really heavily irrigated, but if it was maybe once a week, if it doesn't rain, you turn the water on, that should work pretty well for you. It gets really dry here and we have really rocky, everything so putting a grounding rod into the ground is not happening here without dynamite what I did when I put my electric fence in is we dug a trench down to the rock as deep as we could and we took an 8 foot piece of copper grounding rod and we bent the last foot of it up and we laid 7 feet of it in the ground and we buried it horizontally I don't know if that would help in sandy soil but I don't know maybe it would uh, but it worked. The other thing is use over drive the wire. So, you know, I put a 25-mile box on, you know, a 60, about 60-linear 60 foot of fence. It worked really, really good. That fox never came back. I had a fox hitting my ducks. We set that up, and we know he hit it one time, and we never saw him again. Uh, it, it looked like somebody... Catapulted that thing off of that fence when it happened to him. Uh, had no sympathy for him whatsoever. Um, how do you best material to build raised beds with uh, for longevity? The best thing that I know of, bang for the buck, if you don't mind the way they look, is cinder blocks. Cinder blocks are like 88 cents a piece or something like that. And you have like a couple pallets of them delivered to your house for 50 bucks delivery fee from Lowe's. Um, they just don't look real good, but they'll last forever. And if you don't mortar them together, if you just stack them and you ever decide you want to move them, they're pretty easy to move. So that's probably the cheapest, um, permanent solution. The best solution in my opinion is to pour concrete or do aircrete, but then it's permanent. And if you change your mind, you've got this significant structure. I built mine out of landscape timbers. People seem to always be worried about, well, they're treated with CCA. I wish they were still treated with CCA. It lasted longer. The stuff that that landscape timbers are treated with today is not going to make you sick. It's not going to make your food not not healthy to eat. And you're going to get more toxins by walking out your door and breathing in and out one time than you are going to get from food that you planted with landscape timbers. So that's what I used because it looked good. And it was affordable for what we were doing relative to the construction. Uh, simple pressure-treated lumber works good. The the reality, though, is you can build raised beds with no borders. You just basically pile the dirt up. It just It's a little bit more of a management issue. It's a little less clearly indicated by pattern. Hey, this is where weeds have to stop. Um, most of the people I know that do market gardening and stuff like that, they don't do raised beds. They do kind of row gardening. Um But they use, you know, plastic mulch and, and and that, you know, keeps weeds way, way down and they also till. So it's kind of, it's easier to maintain just a natural mulched weeded environment with a raised bed. And the other reason we do raised beds is one we talked about earlier for drainage. And the other reason we do it is because our soil sucks. So we're going to bring in some sort of a soil mix. And by putting a box there, we kind of know how much we need. We hold it in the area; it doesn't get, you know, doesn't fall off the sides or whatever. But I, I think that the the least expensive permanent, as as far as it ain't going to go away unless you want it to, is cinderlock. Um, next up, uh, how to select the right varieties, the best varieties of vegetables for your location, instead of what's cool and sounds neat and stuff like that. The reality is. Almost everything that you'll find in a seed catalog will tell you what zones it'll do well in. And it will do well in any place if you give it what it needs. the, The only question will be, is your growing season long enough for it? And then it'll still do poorly in almost any place based on the individual microclimate, based on the skill of the gardener, the fertility of the soil, the attention that's given to it, um, whether it's in western or eastern sun, and a million variables. So the best way to find out what the best options for you are is when you're starting out, don't go all in on anything. Plant four of these, four of those, four of these, and four of those, and you know, at least four of anything you're trialing. Anything less than four, I mean, I've grown a bed of six peppers, all the same kind, all from the same supplier. And one or two do like crap. Maybe they were poor genetics. Maybe that was just a little microclimate that was off. Who knows? But if four or five of six do really, really well, I know that works for me. So the only way for me to trial something is to plant, you know, a significant number of it. Enough to say, you know, 75% did well. If it doesn't work, it's my fault. The other side of that is if you plant one of something and it does really good, and you go all in on it next year maybe that one was in a goldilocks zone so it's pick what you know you'll use and what you know you'll eat grow 4 to 6 of everything you want to test grow at least two varieties of any one thing if you have the space so maybe if you're going to do if you like cucumbers do two different cucumbers 4 to 6 plants at least minimum each and then the one that does better they may be the one that you want to go with. But maybe next year now, you try a different variety, and your old variety is now your, your your champion. And then each year, you try to find a new champion. And once you find a permanent... Like, this is my thing. This particular cucumber does great in my climate. For me with peppers, it's jalapenos and cubanelles. I play around with a bunch of other stuff, but boy, I grow some jalapenos and I grow some cubanelles, Lots of them. So... Once you know that, then you start saving seed if you have a variety you can save seed from and develop a land race. That's, that's the best path to that, uh, that solution there. Um, what is more practical to just buy local versus growing your own? Like go so to the farmer's market and just buy it. That, that really depends. I mean, honestly, the stuff I think that makes the most sense to buy is if you do use a lot of commodity crop stuff like potatoes and corn and stuff like this, that stuff. Since it stores well, you can get quality product off a shelf. To me, the stuff that makes the most sense to grow yourself is an easier question. It's the things you eat in large quantities that you can easily grow. So to me, being highly keto now, and have been since August, we eat a lot of salad. Salad greens are expensive. It's also one of the easiest things in the world to grow. So that's what I'm not going to buy. Right? At the farmer's market or whatever. You know, I mean, so it's about based on how much time you have to put in. Tomatoes. You might live in a place where you can grow the hell out of tomatoes. You might live in a place like I do where Nicole saw this question on hydroponics was rooted in how much problem she has with blight. Me too, Nicole. I get it. So, um, I can grow the hell out of tomatoes, but by about midsummer, the blight catches them. So then I've taken all the ones that I can't eat. And I've put them through the Excalibur, dehydrate them, and thrown them in jars. But if I want fresh tomatoes, I'm buying them. So there's a time of year I don't, I couldn't, you couldn't pay me to, to take a tomato. And there's a bigger time of the year that I'm buying them. So I think it's very situational. Um, crops that do well in partial shade, believe it or not, peppers. It's one of my secrets. I have them in the aviary. So when we get to about the Fourth of July, I throw a 50% shade cloth up on the top of the aviary. And it stays there till about the first, second week of September. And production still drops, and I get smaller peppers. But when I take it back off, boom! Now, I know most of you don't have situational shade, right, that you can take away. Um, but peppers generally do well, even with four hours of sun. If they get four hours of sun and a lot of shade for the rest of the day, they do really well, except if that four hours of sun is western sun. They don't like that. All your leafy greens do well in, in, in shade, partial shade. Arugula, lettuce, spinach, even Malabar spinach is a tropical plant, does well in partial shade. Um, broccoli and kales and all your brassias, mustards, do well in partial shade, but they're still going to need four to six hours of sun or 50% shade all day long. All right, next up, um, my top three to five easiest food crops. Well, I got to say, it depends on what you're doing. If you're going to do hydroponics, all the lettuces, all the mustards, all like the pak choys and all that stuff, it couldn't be easier. If you're talking about soil-based gardening, it depends on the time of the year. Early in the year when it's cool, all the lettuces, the kales, the cabbages, the broccolis, the brassies, the mustards, super easy. Highly, highly, amaranth. Amaranth is just the easiest damn thing to grow in the first part of the year in a hot climate. I take a a little handful, a a little pinch of red amaranth seed and I sprinkle it in all my raised beds. I got red amaranth everywhere until it's coming out of my ears. Gets up about 8 inches tall, cut it off with a knife. Throw it in a skillet and fry it. Just beautiful that way. Eat it as a baby. It's good that way, too. Everything's better as a baby. Right? So, it was, it's an incredibly easy one. Moving to the more hot time of year, if you live in a place where you're not completely plugged by squash bugs, winter squash, especially ones that the vine borers can't get in, like butternut. You plant those things, if they get enough water, they grow to the end of the year, and you get tons of food, and it all stores really well. Beans. Beans are probably, if you give it a little bit of attention and you harvest, beans are probably one of the easiest things for anybody to grow. There's more, but those are some really, really easy ones. Um, DIY greenhouses. You buy a greenhouse or make your own, the good, the bad, the ugly. I did a whole show on greenhouses. I'll probably do another one. I will say this. The more I look at if you want to go anything large, and the larger, the happier you're going to be, the... There's an entire industry that is dedicated to building greenhouses that people use who make a living growing food. And those go from really great big giant gable ones that are like 200 freaking foot long and 50 foot wide and built out of steel and hard glass to hoops and tunnels. And every problem that you will run into has been tackled by engineers when you buy a pre-designed system. I am not talking about the $500 greenhouse from Harbor Freight, which can be made relatively decent, but you're going to do a lot of work to make it decent. Uh, I'm talking about you go to the greenhouse megastore and you look at things like their hot tunnels, and things like that, but it gets kind of expensive. The big advantage with DIY is you can keep the cost down, but real quick you find out maybe you can't keep it down as much as you thought you could. The more you do, the harder it gets. The best greenhouse that I've seen DIY done, look at Curtis Stone's channel. He uses the top rail galvanized for chain link fence, and he built a jig to bend it into arches, and you put two of them together, and you get a great big arch, you put greenhouse plastic on it. And I'd say that's probably as good as any of the high tunnels you can buy. Check Craigslist. Uh, like, a, like a hawk, uh, a buddy of mine around here found a whole m- nursery shutting down and was able to get basically as many high tunnels as he could take for as many people as wanted them for next to the nothing. Then all you had to do is re- re-put the plastic on them. But when it comes to DIY greenhouses, I think this is my... Now, having designed a greenhouse that I thought I wanted the way I wanted it, now having to retrofit it to do something totally different. The most important thing when it comes to designing a greenhouse, whether it's buying one or building one, is map out what you want to do first. Understanding there's going to be some kind of constraint on size. And then find the greenhouse that fits the design versus try to make the design fit the greenhouse. Within the constraints. Like, if you have a tunnel, you want to face it north to south so that both sides get lots of sun, east and west. If you set it going east to west long ways and the sun comes across it, plants that grow tall on one side are going to shade out plants on the back side. Right? You're going to get less of an even but you might have to deal with that. So think about where you are, the solar aspect in the space. Then design what you want the inside to be like, and then make it big enough that it's bigger than you think you need it to be. That that's my advice on greenhouses on a short show like this. Next best option for temporary gardens for renters: um, container gardens, hydroponics, aquaponics, and I say hydro over aquaponics in a big way in temporary solutions and this is why when i design a system to be an aquaponic system and it's not going to have a sump in the ground and be digging and stuff like that i have to think a lot about how i keep those fish from getting too hot how i keep those fish from getting too cold and how i keep a sump low enough so that my grow beds are going to be low enough to work on without hating my life If I want to do something like I talked to earlier about how I would do a hydroponics system, cracky style, basically you build a table with a box on top of it and a plywood bottom and fill it with plastic. If you build that, and you know I might leave someday, the first thing you're going to do, you're not going to build 4 by 8 You're going to build a smaller scaled system. If you put it together with screws, then you can literally label it so you know how it goes back together Take the screws apart, put them in a bag, throw it in the back of a pickup truck, and wherever you go, you can take it with you and set it back up. Containers, great. A bag garden would be great. The only thing is, how temporary is temporary? Temporary is five years. I think I would do both if it was me. If temporary is one year, that's a lot of soil, that's a lot of money, and you'll find really quick... It's hard when you're moving to justify taking it with you. Pots and and, and and grow bags and stuff like that, you know, they stack, they ship well. When they're full of soil, there's just no way to, you know, to move them easily. Space in a moving truck or a pickup truck or a trailer becomes really high commodity. You may find yourself making an additional trip just to get all of that stuff somewhere else. And when you start thinking about it that way, you'll go, Ah, I hate to do it, but dump it all out. And now when you move, if you want to reuse all those containers, you got to buy fill for them or come up with fill for them again. If you go with a hydro system in this environment and a few pots instead of a lot of, you know, a few containers with soil, then it's, it's just easier to deal with. So I think it depends on how long. Now, if you're five years, you might know, i probably have pots everywhere and, and wicking beds and all kinds of stuff like that. But, you know, container gardening, one way or another, is really a solution. And I would, I would stay away from aquaponics and living fish until you get somewhere more permanent. Uh, don't forget indoor hydro. I'm already looking at my seed starting system and go man, it would be so easy to build a growing system just a little bit bigger or with just a little bit less plant quantity in it. um, Really easy. One person did set up some uh, hydroponic uh, seed starting and they're getting zero germination. They're getting none of their seeds to germinate. You could be too wet. Um, They said they used rock wool and soy, like like the peat pellets or something like that. I have been using anyway, what I'm using is uh, these plugs called Rapid Rooter Plugs and I have been getting almost 100% germination except for spinach. And I got like a five-pack of different spinach varieties from a seller on Amazon that I will not name because I don't want to accidentally give them any publicity just yet. It's like try their seeds some other way. And I don't know if maybe spinach is just a little bit harder, but I planted 15 spinach seeds um, in 15 plugs, and I got zero. like 30 because I was two in each one. I got zero. And everything else is just growing like crazy. Now, here's some things to think about. And it could be partly where I'm at. I didn't really worry about much about pH. I use rain, I have rainwater catch, so I know I'm below seven. But you know, you want to be really around six five with hydro. I didn't do any pH adjustment. Another thing I didn't do is I wasn't using my EC meter and getting the the the, the proper fertilizer. And it turns out that I'm getting great growth in spite of doing that wrong because in some of my things, my fertilizer is like three times what it should be. And that may be why I'm having a problem there. That may be why you're having a problem as well. I will say, I know a lot of people use rock wool and get really good results. I haven't done well with rock wool ever uh, for starting seed. I've, I just haven't. It just hasn't worked well for me. And part of that may be. I think it's really important you get your pH right with with rock wool. Rock wool has a zero buffering factor with your pH. The Rapid Rooter is made with I think peat is in it and some other things so there is some organic material and it. it has some level of buffering uh, and that may be one of the reasons it works really good um, they're a great product they're not super cheap or anything but they're not expensive either you get like 50 of them for like 13 bucks or something like that um, and I started with something that I knew would work and that way if I try something else I know it's the thing and it's me and I'm not doing something right so I, I wanted that for a baseline so you might want to try the Rapid router plugs The other thing is a lot of people that do hydro don't start really in a hydro system. They take a little flat of soil and they just water from the bottom and they broadcast seed and they prick out their seeds and then they put them into whatever type of hydro system they're going to put them into. So you might try that as well. I have been with the Rapid Rooters, setting them so that the bottom maybe quarter to a half inch of the plug is getting wet at first. Drop a seed in the hole and walk away and come back and it's growing. And that's that's been my result so far. One guy said something, it was more of an observation than a question, but I wanted to speak on it for a second. They said a person with a you know a PDC and a lot of experiences of permaculture it just doesn't really realize that if they ever just need a job, they can probably just walk into a nursery or a garden center or a box store or whatever and get a job working in the plant section. Maybe. Maybe. Uh number one are they hiring. Uh, number two, you might, if you ever find yourself in that situation, want to back off the whole permaculture thing a little bit. They're not selling to permaculturists. They're selling to soccer moms and Karens. Okay, That's who they're selling to. So what you really want to have is horticulture knowledge and product knowledge for that job. And it is lacking. And that's probably where this person is coming from, and they probably mean exactly what I'm saying, too. But I just kinda of wanted to point that out for onlookers or for some thoughts on the show. And when I go to a store, especially like a box store, and I'm in the garden center and I'm just, you know, throwing some you know soil or something on a flat cart or whatever I'm after, and I hear conversations around me, it's almost or maybe it's worse sometimes than listening to conversations at a gun store. You ever been to a gun store and the guy behind the counter is telling some lady what she doesn't want in a gun? and tell them about the difference between a 380 and a 9 mm and you almost want to kill yourself and you almost can't keep your mouth shut but you do. Yes, what in garden stores? I don't. And I'll wait till that conversation over say, "Hey, um, hold on." And I'll give that person advice that's 99 times better. 99 times out of 100, I guarantee my advice is better than what they got from the store. But it also might result in them not buying something. And not not buying this and buying that, but not buying anything at all and just changing their practice. So, But I'll tell you, I do think that there is a need for people with solid horticultural knowledge that also can come at less from what we call permaculture perspective, but more from an all-natural organic lack of toxins perspective. Because Not because it's important that it be done that way, because more and more people are asking about it. More and more people want that type of a solution. I've, I've, around here, tons of people I've told how to make basically make antifuego since you can't order online anymore. Uh, just using orange oil and, and, and compost tea, basically, to get rid of fire ants. I, I probably have told two dozen people in the last year, just running by at the feed store or whatever, and watched the clerk listen to me, <laughs> nod their head, Wow, that's pretty smart. And then seeing that same clerk ask that question, and again, a person that specifically said, I want a non-toxic solution, recommend Amtron. It's like they can't learn. I don't understand. So I do think there is an opportunity there. A um, the guy was talking, basically wanted me to give him a justification to buy a $2,000 wood chipper, diesel-powered wood chipper. Um, I will tell you this. It takes a long time all things considered, fuel, time, energy, and initial cost and maintenance to get your money out of a wood chipper, unless you're using it all day, every day. We had one that was a PTO-driven one at the farm in West Virginia. And we needed a bunch of wood mulch. And we had a whole bunch of slash. And we put slash through it for like a half an hour. And we got a little bitty pile of mulch. Um... I can't give you the justification for it unless you have a landscaping company. When I had a lot of stuff to mulch in Pennsylvania, I would rent a chipper shredder like once a year. But those, I I don't, people told me it's hard to do anymore. I haven't tried to rent one, so like the big one that you tow behind a truck... From the Northwest Rentals here where I get my heavy equipment from. That thing's like a thousand dollars a day or something. It's stupid. Like you might as well buy one another thing you know, if you can do that. But I used to be able to rent, you know, like kind of like the one size up from the bottom of like a DR style chipper shredder for like thirty five bucks a day. And if you can do that, I, I have a hard time justifying buying one. If you're gonna use it enough, I'll say this. I know you gotta get rid of it. You probably have material you gotta get rid of. You can make biochar a lot easier. You can even sell it. And if you do need to do some mulching, cause you need wood mulch, find a bulk place around and see what you can get it for. Because I get a two yard load for like 38 bucks. Do you know how many yards of wood chips I can buy? It? that price per two yards before i spend two thousand dollars and i don't have to take care of an expensive loud piece of equipment and do the work so really put it in excel all right last one guy asked me how to sell customers on going organic and a garden maintenance business i think he's in the uk uh he's afraid that his customers will not want to do it because progress is slower blah blah etc okay well first of all when you say you're afraid that they won't that means you haven't asked So he asked me for sales tips. So the way you get an order is you ask for the order. And the way you get an order for a specific thing is you present the specific thing and you ask for the order. So instead of being afraid that your customers won't want to do it, then I think you should explain to them the benefits of doing it, the trade-offs of doing it, and ask them if they want to do it. You wanted a special super-duper sales trick. Sorry, that is the formula. You, You already have trust. You're already working with them, and if they say no, don't be afraid. Say, okay, and keep doing it. it Pay the bills. Number one thing you can do is find somebody that wants to do it, do a really good job for them, get a testimonial from them and lots of pictures of their garden, and then show that to other people. And then start advertising that you provide organic garden maintenance. Advertise it. Market it. And instead of trying to sell people on it, people that want it will ask you to come do it. So that's the most direct answer I can give you, but that's really it. You don't trick people into buying things. That's not. That's what I got from your question. Maybe you don't mean it that way. And you said you've listened to me, so you know my sales philosophy. It's transfer of belief, and you even mentioned that. But it's not like Houdini, like hocus pocus, transfer of belief, right? You have to believe in what you're doing, and you have to present it in a way that people will then share the belief. That's how you transfer it. But there's no tricks. And if a person really doesn't want something, you back off. You back off. So you need to come up with kind of five or six bullet point, short, one minute long presentation. If we convert your garden to all organic, this is what it looks like. This is the step back we'll take to get it done. This is the, the, the future. This is how it's more resilient long term. This is how it's safer and better for your family and your pets. Would you like to try that or would you like to stick with the approach we've been using? That's it. I want to stick with the approach we're using. Okay, here's your bill this week. I want to change. Okay, here's here's the conversion process, and here's your bill for that. That's it. That's all there is to it. With that, we've wrapped it up. It went an hour and 34 minutes. I feel good with intro and all that other stuff, an hour and 34 minutes uh, with 40 questions like this. Anyway. So, if you want to support this show because you like the content that we put out there for you, like this show today, which is about as much variety as you'll ever get, I I defy Howard Garrett and Neil Sperry combined to give you as much as I gave you in an hour and 30 minutes right there, right? You probably don't know who either one of them are, but these guys are on the radio and I love both of them, but I can listen to their show three times and I can take their job. I can give every answer they're going to give. I know what they're going to say. This is a hell of a value, so support us. Do that by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, where you will see things that I recommend and I spend my money on, and if you don't, you shouldn't. If if I didn't think I would, I don't know. I'm just blowing it in. No, if I would not spend my money on it, I wouldn't ask you to spend yours on it. Today is is a food and spice item. These are Szechuan peppercorns by a company called CC Store. Now, Szechuan peppercorns are not hard to find in good quality, but they are hard to find in good quality and not ridiculously expensive. I have seen, you know, a one ounce packet of Szechuan peppercorns, good quality, one sell for fifteen bucks. These you can get two ounces for nine ninety nine, that's about five dollars an ounce, or you get twelve ounces for twenty three ninety nine, which is about two dollars an ounce. You can even buy more than that if you want to. I would buy a two ounce package and try them first. Szechuan peppercorns are not super hot; they're not going to blow your brains out. Um, they're not from a pepper; they're from a tree. Uh, most of the time, if you go to a Chinese restaurant in America and you say, I want to get the Szechuan beef, you do not get Szechuan beef. You get beef with hot peppers on it, not Szechuan peppercorns. Szechuan peppercorns are a little bit spicy, a little bit hot, in a different way than a capsaicin, different way than a pepper. But they have an almost numbing effect in your mouth and a sweetness. And it's unlike anything else in the world. I don't know any, the closest I can give you the numbing effect in your mouth is like Novocaine. But it's not like Novocaine where like, I can't talk, my lips too big. That's not like that. It's this weird, tingly, numb, cool, hot thing going on with this totally unique flavor. And these are the best quality at a fair price that I've ever found. I even give you the write up today. It's with as long as the show is, it's too long for me to give you all this stuff. But I give you a source. If you want to grow your own trees, you can do it. But you need a male and a female, and you got to wait years, or you can buy some and try it now. I did a beef skewer for the, the fall workshop. People were literally hovering over. Like when I first first put them on, Everybody's like, oh, Jack's cooking again, and we were – this was our party day stuff, you know. And when we put the first batch of them out, because I made 20 pounds of skewers at like three ounces of skewer. It was a lot of skewers. I did a lot of skewering. When I put that first batch of them out, within five minutes, I had a crowd behind me. I could see shadows of people leaning over the grill. When are the next ones going to be done? And there wasn't a single one left. Like everything, because I overcooked. Everything had leftovers. There wasn't one piece of the steak left. It was that good. And it's it's complicated, but I have the whole recipe. It's a wet marinade and a dry rub. Both use the peppercorns. And then... I also gave away today a steak rub that I promise you, you won't find anywhere else. It uses salt, brown sugar, or brown Lakanto, if you want to stay keto, Szechuan peppercorns, garlic powder, coffee, cocoa powder, 100% cocoa powder. There's no sugar in it. Don't worry about it. True cinnamon and ground ginger. In what quantities? Look at the article. I have given away Spirico Trade Secrets today. On on these two recipes. These would be closely guarded secrets from most people that put the effort. I, I did not just, like, pull these out of my ass. These were tested, tried, different versions, and both of them are amazing. The steak rub, very mild on the Szechuan pepper. The beef skewers, a little bit more, but still pretty mild. Give away some additional tips and tricks. These things are awesome. Give them a try, and I'll tell you what. This is something that when you make some, one of these things for your friends, when they come back to your house, they're going to be like, can, can, you, can you make that again? They're also going to say, how do you do that? And it'll be up to you whether you want I don't mind. My, my, my secrets are now public. It's up to you if you want to share them or not. Um, these really are something I put a lot of time into, and they're going to be something truly special if you give it a shot. I would say to buy, buy the smaller quantity the first time. It'll probably still last you quite a while. You don't use a lot of them uh, for a single meal because it is very distinctive and you might not like it. But we had 70 people here, we had zero that didn't like it. That's about as a home run as you're going to hit with anything, especially something distinctive. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. We are now at our song of the day and we are in ELO week. ELO. What's that? No, you young whippersnappers that don't know good music. That would be Electric Light Orchestra. And this is going to be a song even if you don't think you know who ELO is, and even if you don't think you know the name of the song when I tell you the name of the song, when you hear the first 20 seconds of music, even if you're a young, young, young post-millennial, you're going to be like, wow, oh, I know that song. Hey, I've heard that before. It's called Don't Bring Me Down. It was the biggest hit they ever had. And uh, it's just a really great kind of funky song. It doesn't have a huge, deep meaning. This is from, you know, the time when music would have a lot less words and be a lot less longer songs. Or sometimes there were really long songs with even less words. And not every time there was a song did it have a great, deep meaning. But this song really kind of sort of does. This is about a guy that's got a woman in his life who he really, really is into, but she just keeps dragging him down. Now, a little historical note from this. This was actually a song that NASA played for astronauts in space during some of the shuttle missions, including one where they had to stay up there a little longer because they had bad weather, and so they couldn't come back and land. So they had to stay up in space for a couple more days so they use this as their wake-up call. Don't bring me down. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.